Hello, I'm Matthew Frost and welcome to another episode of Fully Schooled. What a year 2020 has been. When we started recording these podcasts all the way back in November last year, none of us could quite have predicted the way that this year was going to pan out. It's had its challenges for everybody and everything, especially for Salvation Army music making all around the world. But it's had many blessings too, like the numerous virtual recordings, uh, concerts and virtual meetings that we've been able to enjoy from all around the world. But 2020 isn't finished yet. Oh no. For what pandemic-filled year would be complete without a fully scored Christmas special? In this episode, we're going to be analysing one of the most iconic and most loved works in the Salvation Army's Christmas repertoire, Gaudete, with the composer himself, Kevin Norbury. But first of all, it gives me great pleasure to welcome our interviewee for this evening. If you cast your minds to January the 1st, what do you think of? The New Year's firework displays, or perhaps the New Year's concert in Vienna? Or do you think of the Tournament of the Roses Parade? Well, our guest this evening has been a key part in making that event happen so successfully, year upon year. Not only that, but he's also an inspirational leader and was a legendary songster leader of the Pasadena Tabernacle Songsters. He's also the second guest on this podcast to have been awarded the Order of the Founder. It gives me great pleasure to welcome William B. Flynn to this Christmas special. Matthew, it's wonderful to be with you. Great to be with fellow Salvationists and all good friends in the UK. Great, and thank you so much for giving up your time to join us this evening. We really appreciate that. So you, I'm talking to you now from my study or sort of back room near Birmingham in the UK, and you're coming to us all the way from California. Uh, my first question would be, have you always lived in California? Uh, no, I haven't always lived in California. I was actually born and raised in eastern Pennsylvania around the Philadelphia area, where as um, a young boy, I developed my interest in uh, all things that uh, you would in that part of the country. I had the opportunity afforded me to come and do a music camp actually in Southern California in my uh, late teens. And I was given the opportunity to consider a internship in PR. So I bought a one-way ticket to LA and landed here. And uh, my mother said to me, I really think you should go see if it could work. And if it doesn't, you can always buy another ticket and fly back to the East. So far, I haven't bought that ticket back to the East. And was it quite a shock moving to LA? I'd imagine quite a different city. Unfortunately, I've never been yet, but one day hopefully I'll be able to. But uh, was it quite a shock moving to the other side of the country and experiencing this completely different way of life? Well, it certainly was different because I really didn't know anyone uh, when I came out here, uh, other than the fact that I had had that music camp experience. So it really was in some respects being on my own, but uh, I stepped forth in faith, thought it was a good idea. And I arrived on a Saturday night. Uh, the plane arrived from the east and uh, the next morning I went to the core uh, at the tab that I'm still part of today. And on Monday morning, I showed up at eight o'clock for my first day of work. And what would you say the best thing about living in California is? Well, the weather isn't bad, um, though we do experience all four seasons. Um, I have friends around the world who tell me that's not true, but we really do. I know when it's cold outside because, uh, uh, you know, even today I have a sweater on because uh, it was a little cool this morning. So I needed to be prepared for the elements of the day. But, you know, we're only a few miles away from the Pacific Ocean, which isn't bad. Uh, it's a great place to raise a family. Pasadena is a lovely town full of trees and everything else. And it's a short trip to Disneyland. So that can benefit us as well. Absolutely. Sounds very exciting indeed. And you grew up in the Salvation Army. What are some of your first memories of the Salvation Army? Well, I... I, you know, it's a little hard to remember my very first memory because when I was born and came home from uh, the hospital with my mother and father, uh, we came to the Army Hall. And the reason for that is my parents were the Corps officers and the quarters were upstairs. So my first night of life uh, was spent in a Salvation Army Hall. 
And uh, I'm sure in those early years, my early playing and so forth was in between the chairs and the pews and in and out of the band room, et cetera, and so forth at the core. So the Army has been part of my life, all of it. And sticking talking about your formative years, could you tell us a little bit about your initial inspirations um, that formed your pathway into the world of making music? Well, that would first and foremost be with my parents. Uh, my dad and mom, my father was a very accomplished cornetist and um, studied privately for, I think, 12 years and uh, played both within the Army. His parents were also Corps officers and he played within the Army and out. My mother was very accomplished pianist, vocalist, studied voice for over 12 years and um, also was an instrumentalist and uh, went to training and continued to push music in all of their appointments. So my dad was either teaching kids how to play horns, my mother was teaching kids how to sing. And uh, I just thought that's what everybody did because when we went to see my mother's parents, we would go to the core and I would see all the music happenings and everything going on. And we would then go to see my father's parents at their core and I would see the exact same thing. But I think some of the formative aspects were the fact that my folks were very involved with the community. They were very compassionate about their salvationism. And I just think it kind of oozed into me that this is what I would do. And uh, as a result of it, I couldn't wait to get to the army. Uh, later in life, we didn't live on the building. We, we actually had separate quarters. So. Uh, but I had to come to the building to uh, be able to do all the playing around and actually get in groups. And can you remember your first ever music lesson? I can. Uh, it, uh, well, you know, my dad started me on drums first because he thought I really needed to learn rhythms. Uh, and that's kind of what, what I, so I really became percussionist. Uh, but on visiting my grandfather, um, who was out in Western Pennsylvania, he uh, started me on trombone. Nice. So I think that is a promotion going from percussion to trombone, isn't it? Oh, I think it's a natural evolution. Then I went to bass trombone and found my lo real love uh, on bass trombone because I could be, as my wife often said, loud and rude and people accepted it. <laughs> it's just the way of the bass trombone. <laughs> so moving on a little bit now through your life, uh, I think it would be quite challenging to overstate the influence that you had as your time as a songster leader at the Pasadena Tabernacle Corps. Could you talk us through a few of your highlights that you remember from that period? Well, I do remember that when I was asked to be the songster leader at Tab, I had been at the Corps about three months. And uh, there were 17 songsters when they were all able to be there. And I really, even though I had led some contemporary vocal groups back East in my teens, I really didn't know literature and really wasn't quite sure what to do, but I did view the songsters as a communication tool. Uh, and maybe that had to do a bit with the type of career that I uh, went into in communications and marketing. And I really felt that the songsters um, needed to be communicators. Now, I must admit to you that in my humble leading of them, uh, I think they were just praying that we got through Sunday morning meeting with our item without falling apart. Um, but we grew and I would have to give the credit to all the songsters who participated all during those years, uh, many of my locals uh, and many of other folks from composers. Uh, Len Ballantyne had a big effect upon me at that point. We were friends and um, Matter of fact, I was staying with him when I met my wife uh, in Toronto. And Len had a great influence on me on sound and direction. Uh, but then this idea of going to uh, memorization, uh, also um, choreography, I would have to say that probably that influence came from maybe watching a few too many uh, Disney singing groups. Um, but uh, I really felt that there was an opportunity for songsters to be able to connect with the audience, whether that was in our Sunday morning or in the extra events. And there were some real highlights. I mean, we, we traveled, um, frankly, traveled the world, it seemed, back in those days, 
but really always remembering that our first responsibility was at the core. Um, and it was about relationships and it was about building future generations. And the Sanchez were really a very multi-generational group, um, which was really uh, fantastic. But, um, you know, it's, it's very interesting that this, this may sound uh, odd, but uh, we, we recorded uh, an item, My Joy, My Crown, and we recorded it as an acapella item, a very simple uh, piece. And we had been in Wellingboro um, uh, for a program, and it was actually the night before we were to head to the Albert Hall uh, to participate in the 100th anniversary of Songster Brigades. And on the morning, we went into um, the core hall to, with all of our billets. And um, one of the, my billet uh, said, I want to show you a building that's back here. It's our youth building. And I went back there and he took me out and showed me the cornerstone and it said the Christian mission. Uh, and it had been dedicated by, uh, by, by Catherine Booth. And of course, I brought all the songsters, all 65, 70 of them outside. I made sure that they saw this history, you know, the army thing. And then we went back in and we had to say goodbye because the coach was there to take us to, to the Albert Hall. And we sang this, My Joy, My Crown. And that core hall, the acoustics were just so fantastic that um, I started the group off. And as I often did, I, I didn't conduct, conduct them because they were trained enough to be able to sing it without me. Um, I think they actually like that often to actually sing without me as the songster leader, but uh, they, they sang this piece. And I will tell you that the tears came down my face uh, in listening to this magnificent sound in this hall uh, in Wellingboro. And I looked around at all the billets and the songsters and everybody was just in tears. And I thought um, this was just a fantastic moment for me to realize the joy that the Lord uh, gives us as Salvation Army musicians. Uh, and of course, the next day we go off and it's the Albert Hall. And um, I remember blowing uh, confetti cannons off in the concert that night. And I, I think maybe people thought somebody was attacking the audience, but uh, we did a rock version of the Hallelujah Chorus uh, the next night. So, you know, we did do some different things, but I, I go from the simplicity of that My Joy, My Crown acapella uh, all the way to a rock version of the Hallelujah Chorus with confetti cannons uh, going off. Um, all of those are great experiences, but probably the greatest was actually meeting fellow Christians and fellow Salvationists around the world. My life has so uh, grown as a result of those experiences that I had uh, with the Sanctuaries and the band as well. Absolutely. And it's uh, mentioned those things. It makes miss missing being able to do those things in the current pandemic it makes miss them even more. Um, oh, absolutely. So you said that the Solster Brigade, you started with 17 uh, in the brigade and quickly grew and, and got larger. How do you make a section appealing to want to be part of? And do you think that was different then as it is now? Well, I think you have to uh, let them know that, that they have a very important part. Uh, to play. It's sort of like a leader who uh, wants to scale a mountaintop. Uh, you start up the mountain, but if you're a leader and you turn around halfway up and you see that there's nobody around you, uh, you're in trouble. And I think it's being able to not just only convince, but get buy-in from people of ownership that, the, that uh, I, I hate to use it from a standpoint of a merchandising idea, but the product that you're putting out, the, 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 the ministry of the music that you're putting out, they own a piece of it uh, and they, um, and I think delegation of responsibilities uh, is very, very important um, because I, uh, whether it was in musical leadership or whether my time in my career, I tried to surround myself with people who had skills that I do not have uh, and that I do not possess uh, because they were more capable of getting that done than me. So I tried to figure out what my skills were and then get it all together and, and do it. And I think one of the ways that you get people involved is you actually challenge them. Uh, I mean, I, I uh, heard somebody one day say to me, um, uh, I asked them, I said, uh, now you've attended the Salvation Army all your life, but you never became a soldier. I said, why, why could you just share with me why, why, why that is? And they said, nobody ever asked me. 
And uh, I think that's true about musicians. Um, you know, songster brigades, uh, bands, uh, don't have to have all star players and star singers in it. Um, it's really an extension of the congregation. And I think it also has to extend to the generations of the congregation um, so that you have the young, the middle-aged uh, and the more mature uh, you know, people part of it. Uh, so I think it's recruitment. I think you gotta constantly be recruiting um, and just reminding people that, you know, frankly, we'd be a lot better off with you than without you. And then it's up to them. So you can't force human beings to, to do something they don't want to do, but uh, you can't control others, but you can certainly encourage them. So I, I, a little bit of that, I think, still works. That works in business. Uh, that works in family. <laughs> and it works, I think, in musical groups as well. Uh, people, especially who are volunteering and giving up their time, uh, need to feel that if I'm not there, it won't work quite as well. Wise words indeed. If you had to sum up in a paragraph, what was your vision for the songsters? Well, it was to be a communication tool for the Lord. It was to uh, actually uh, sing words that are relevant to uh, individuals who are in good times in their life, difficult times in their life, and even just normal life. Um, the opportunity for the songsters to feel a sense of belonging. Uh, one of the challenges I think that we are going to continue to face, particularly after this pandemic, is we have all been so isolated that there could be the possibility that people get used to being alone uh, and not interacting with others. It's through being with others that we grow, we expand our thinking, and we build camaraderie and our commitment is shared and we don't feel so alone. Uh, and I think we're gonna to have to work hard at that um, whenever we see the end of this uh, because people have been, particularly in California right now, people are being basically told, stay home, don't go out, don't be with people. Um, that is, the opposite of what the Lord wants us to do as Christians. And so I do think that we're gonna to have to work hard at that. And I think it's possible, but we may have to think differently than we did before. But my primary purpose, uh, or at least desire for the songsters was to become a communication tool to the gospel. So that leads very nicely onto my next question. So now you are the band leader, uh, the band master at Pasadena Tabernacle. Does your vision for the band differ from that vision that you had for the songsters at all? Well, it's still first and foremost a communication tool. So once again, it's being able to relate the music to um, the audience. Uh, fortunately, uh, being way over here in California, I have said many times how grateful I am for, um, for music editorial and SBNS uh, providing us with so many different levels of, of brass banding that uh, relate well stylistically, uh, idiom-wise, um, that's very good. Um, and um, I think even here in the United States, there's you know, a number of publications that, that, that work very well for us. So first of all, I think it is being able to communicate and relate to the audience that, you're, that you are connecting with. Um, you know, they always say that about speakers you always want to make sure that you're speaking to the audience uh, and with the audience that you have in front of you and that you aren't uh, giving them something that frankly they don't want to hear. So I do think first and foremost, banding, same as songsters, all about communication. And sometimes that means maybe we do things differently than we would do them. Now, the reality is uh, I think some bands like certainly the rink and, um, and Melbourne staff and a few others, you know, have adopted a little bit of what I call the the the, the blast kind of uh, concept, you know, of, of choreography and everything else. I haven't done too much of that with the tab band, um, though. You know, we do try to do some things inside our own hall a little bit occasionally, but nowhere to the extent that I think uh, the rink has or uh, the Melbourne staff band has. But I also believe that in all of this, one of the primary responsibilities in banding, songsters, singing company, whatever the group you have, it, it's to bring the next generation along. 
Um, it's making sure that you have the undergirding uh, because um, you want the 16-year-old sitting next to the 62-year-old in the band. In our culture today, generations are separated a great deal uh, by age groups. I think one of the most fantastic aspects of the Salvation Army music program is multi-generational within the group so that you not only are getting the musical training, but you're getting life lessons by those who you associate with. And so the mentoring aspect, I believe, is probably one of the biggest continuing um, connections I see between being a songster leader and being a bandmaster. Uh, at the Boundless International Congress, all the way back in 2015 now, uh, you were awarded the Order of the Founder, the highest recognition of service in the Salvation Army. Perhaps you could talk us a little bit through what your citation was for this and how you felt being awarded this honor. Well, I was sitting in the meeting and I thought the general said my name, but I looked at Catherine and uh, you know, it is interesting that we are William and Catherine, but we didn't do the uh, Bramwell and Evangeline and all that, you know, for our kids' names. Um, but uh, I, I said, did they just, did he just say my name? She said, yes, you better go. Because I first thought was, if I stand up and start walking up there and I find out I wasn't supposed to come up there, that would have been really embarrassing in front of those 16, 17,000 Salvationists all sitting there. Um, but to be honest with you, I had no idea what it was for. Um, uh, to this day, I actually really don't believe I deserve that. Um, because I think there are so many other people who have done far more. And, and I have been the beneficiary of those. I was finally able to reconcile this after some time. I accepted this on behalf of all of the other Salvation Army musicians, officers, and Salvationists around the world who have touched my life and have touched others. And I give the credit to them. Very humble for you indeed. I can't believe they didn't give you any warning or tip you off at all. <laughs> my wife knew three months before it, which she told me afterwards. So we do know one thing, Catherine doesn't tell me everything. <laughs> What a surprise indeed. Very good to hold on to that, that secret for so long. A huge part of your life has been um, your work for the Tournament of the Roses Parade. Now, firstly, for those listeners that may have heard of the Rose Bowl Parade, but don't know a lot about it, uh, could you give us an overview of what on earth the event is? Well, the primary events, uh, the biggest events, is the Rose Parade and the Rose Bowl football game. Now, when I say football game, I'm talking about American football and at the college university level, it's a championship game. And these events are broadcast on television. Uh, they are huge events. The parade is five and a half miles long, attracts nearly a million people along the parade route. Between the parade and the game, it reaches over a hundred million television viewers uh, around the world in over 200 countries and territories. Obviously, the domestic audience is very large here in the United States. The organization does many other things as well. It is an organization that is responsible to generate roughly $450 million of economic impact to the Southern California region. We had over 1,000 Tournament of Roses members working on 36 operational committees year-round. And from marketing to sponsorship to coordination with the city, Homeland Security, uh, all of those types of details that come into running uh, events of this magnitude. Now, your influence on the event spans over three decades. But first of all, could you tell us how originally you got involved in the parade? Well, actually, when I came to Southern California, uh, I was in the public relations department as this intern but they needed somebody to organize the army's participation with the band in the parade. So they came to me and said, you are gonna be the bandmaster of the Tournament of Roses, Salvation Army Tournament of Roses Parade Band. Um, 
And I said, oh my goodness, you know, um, wow, you know, this is a big responsibility. And I had three months to put it together. And um, so that's kind of how I first got connected to the Tournament of Roses. And I actually led the band uh, in the parade for five years um, before I was then hired by the Tournament of Roses uh, as the public relations director. Um, I became a member when I was here about three years because it's a volunteer group. I lived in Pasadena and I thought, oh, I should volunteer in the community and I'll become a member of the Tournament of Roses. So I would stand barricades all night long um, prior to the parade. I'd change into my tunic. I'd get down, I'd lead the army band in a parade. I'd get to the end of the parade and I would get a lift back to the beginning of the parade where I would start taking down no parking signs as a volunteer uh, for the Tournament of Roses. And they sent a memo out one day saying they were looking for a new PR director. And uh, I thought maybe I could put my hat in the ring uh, I guess all I can say is no, um, and we'll do that. Uh, a very interesting little thing happened in the interview process, because I, I guess I really didn't think, I was in my late 20s, and I thought um, that even though I lived in Pasadena, uh, Catherine was working at the hospital here in Pasadena, because we were married by this point, and um, went to the interview, and they raised a question, and they said, you know, we um, have to attend particularly the uh, management staff have to attend many social events throughout the year. And um, we note that you are a salvationist. And they said, we realize that, that means you are a teetotaler. And many of the events that you will be going to will have social drinking at it. How do you believe you can handle that? And I thought, the first thing I thought of, well, I just lost the job because <laughs> I don't drink. And uh, I said, well, I don't plan on changing how, how I believe or what I do, but I certainly don't feel that I would make people feel uncomfortable uh, with their choices of life uh, that might be different than mine. And they looked back at me and they said, well, we appreciate that because one of the people that were in this job, unfortunately, became an alcoholic. Uh, in the job. So we actually view the fact that you are a non-drinker as a plus. <laughs> I don't know that that's what got me the job, but it certainly uh, probably didn't hurt. And finally, in your time as the CEO and the executive director, could you tell us about some of the experiences that you had in this capacity and some of the innovations that you uh, had? We, we actually tried one year um, to have a 3D coverage of the Rose Parade so that everybody had to go to local drugstores and supermarkets to get the glasses and, you know, be able to watch this thing. Um, that was one of those projects that, that sounded better than it probably ended up, uh, but, uh, you know, it was worth trying. But next came high definition television. And we were the very first live event in the United States to be broadcast on high def and to be able to be part of that. Then to get into digital broadcasting, uh, where we were now, um, you know, dealing with the parade on the internet uh, to be able to introduce those types of things. And once again, I would really emphasize, as I said earlier, you know, I, I surrounded myself with people who were very knowledgeable uh, about a lot of disciplines. So I, I don't really take the credit. I look at it that we were a team. So you've had the opportunity to meet many big names, celebrities, and even a couple of presidents. Do you ever get nervous going into the room to meet these people? There's, there's a tendency, I think, before I enter a room to kind of go, you know, just kind of breathe. Um, but, um, you know, I, I think once again, being a kid growing up, having to give my testimony out on the street in an open air, uh, <laughs> you know, when uh, probably didn't want to do it, um, uh, but uh, realized that, you know, I needed to share my faith. Um, I, I think uh, my wife and I, when we first, when I first went to Tournament Rose, we were very, very young still compared to all the other people that we were with. And uh, we used to just hold hands and kind of um, deep, deep breathe before we go into a reception or a banquet or a dinner or a, a review of some kind or a corporate meeting. 
I mean, I remember sitting at the negotiation table with ESPN and there were a lot of wonderful people that we had involved in negotiations representing the Tournament Roses. But when we started talking about these negotiations and dollars and all of these types of things, I must admit to you, I kind of thought to myself, I wonder if any of them know I'm a little Salvation Army kid sitting here at the table. Um, you know, uh, I'm, I felt a little bit out of my element. But uh, the Lord tells us to get out there and be with others. And uh, I think that's where faith, family, and community come together, and he probably helped me along the way to try to find the right word, uh, whether it was visiting the president in the Oval Office or otherwhere else. And it was only because of who I was representing uh, that I get these opportunities. Uh, you, know, you, you know, George Lucas isn't particularly interested in meeting Bill Flynn. That's not on his agenda for the day. Um, but if I need or want George Lucas to do something, then I've got to have the guts to go try. Because once again, all he can say is no. Um, and so, you know, you kind of you kind of live by that. Uh, I, 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 I'm very, very grateful for uh, all the experiences I had at Tournament of Roses uh, in management and working with people, but it all boiled down to relationships. And I saw that as a child in my father and mother as army officers. You know, my dad died when he was 39 years old and my mom continued in the work. And um, so I was very young when my dad died, but um, somehow his passion, he was my hero, uh, his passion, his um, desire for family, his desire for friends, desire for community, and the idea that we should try to serve others because it will enrich our lives, I think, um, is, uh, is, a, is the teaching that I am extremely grateful that I had. And I've had it from a whole lot of other Salvationists and other individuals in and out of the army over the years. So would you say that your faith significantly in, influenced the way that you approached your working job? Oh, I think very much so. Um, I was given by a, um, an officer in my youth after my dad had died um, a little plaque that uh, was in my room as I grew up after my dad was promoted to glory. I kept it all through my life and in my offices at the Tournament of Roses uh, in amongst that wonderful, beautiful mansion I got to work in, there was a little plaque and this was the reminder. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. That's faith. And faith uh, helped me. Now, sometimes I probably wasn't looking at that or thinking that way. Uh, that's probably when I got in trouble, you know. Um, but um, eventually, that faith, family, and friendships um, are the enduring thing that I, uh, I value uh, more than anything else. Wise words for us to take away and apply to our lives as we go forwards. Now, I'm sure you've done many, many interviews and been asked many questions throughout your life. But some of these quick fire questions, I'd like to think that you've never been asked before and never will be asked again. Some of them are a little bit more serious, but maybe some are on the borders of being a bit weird. We'll start off with the normal. Who is your favourite Salvation Army composer? Eric Wall. Who's your favorite non-Salvation Army composer? Charles Ives. And have you got a favorite Salvation Army band piece of music? Resurgum. How about a songster piece? Isn't that ironic that I hesitate there um, after recording so many? And um, I think there's an old piece called The Glorious Day. It was in the musical Sally many, 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 many generations ago. And I like that. Now, as this is our Christmas special episode, uh, what's your favorite carol? Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And how about on the opposite end of the spectrum, your least favorite carol? Uh, the Grinch, the Grinch tune, I guess. <laughs> Great. Um, now, in your opinion, what is the best festive food? I like a turkey dinner with all the stuffings and all the vegetables and everything else, that's probably my favorite. Can't go wrong there. 
Now, this is a hypothetical question, but who would win in a game of Monopoly? The Shepherds or the Magi? The Shepherds. They have a big stick. <laughs> Always useful in Monopoly. You can poke the opposition out of the way. <laughs> um, what's your favourite verse from Scripture? I think it would have to be Jeremiah, the uh, 29th chapter, verse 11. Uh, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And I've held on to that down through the years uh, because when I've had my moments of darkness and my moments of fear, that is the one that kept me holding on uh, to the faith that the Lord gave me. What's the best gift you've ever received? My wife. Very romantic. And um, what's the worst gift you've ever received? Hypothetical questions. <laughs> but we haven't got many more left. <laughs> um, is the rose actually your favourite flower or do you prefer a cheeky hydrangea or a hyacinth every now and again? No, I like the rose and it is actually the American flower. It's the, it's the national flower of America. But, um, you know, um, the rose helped pay my mortgage over the years. So I, uh, I actually really like the rose. Now, have you got your own rose garden? Uh, we do have roses at home. We do. Very nice. In your opinion, what's the best variety of chili? Turkey chili. And last question. If you could change the colour of Rudolph's nose, what colour would you change it to? Pink, because it's my granddaughter's favourite colour. Great stuff. Well, thank you ever so much once again for your wise words, your time and your humour. It's been wonderful to speak to you. And I I'm sure those listening at home will have enjoyed it also. Many blessings. Merry Christmas. Well, we thank Bill for those wise words and wonderful stories. What an inspirational man. Now we go into the next segment of our podcast. We welcome Kevin Norbury to talk about his piece, Gaudete. Firstly, welcome to the podcast. It's a real pleasure to have you here. And thank you ever so much for giving up your time to join us today. Uh, today, we're going to be looking at your composition, Gaudete, a firm favourite of any band, especially at Christmas. First of all, would you be able to tell us a little about the background of how you came to writing this piece? At the time, I wanted to write something a little bit different from just a straight carol arrangement. So I decided that I would choose three medieval carols and put them into a sort of mini Christmas overture, if you like, for brass band. Um, I, I'm particularly fond of carols from the medieval and renaissance periods in european history i just love the sound of them uh, their melodies have something about them which make them eminently singable and also very memorable and uh, they were three of my favorites um, i did also consider in dulce Ubilo, but that had been done so many times by so many people that I, I decided to leave that one out and stick to these three. So that basically was um, the reason for it. There may have been another reason, I don't know. I, I know the ISB played it at the, uh, the annual big Salvation Army Christmas festival that was used to be held in London. Um, I don't know. I can't remember now whether I was asked to write for that or anything, but it was, it was done sort of, I think, middle of the year-ish in 1997, so. So the three medieval carols that you mentioned uh, featured our Coventry carol, Unto Us a Boy is Born, and of course, the title track, Gaudete. Uh, what was the inspiration between using these particular carols? Well, the Coventry carol, um, being a sort of 16th century English carol, seemed the ideal one to begin with, um, the slowest of the three. And also, um, of course, it's a carol that if you follow the words of the verses tells the whole story and focuses on the massacre of the innocents as it's told in Matthew 2. Uh, the other two uh, were firm favorites of me. I'd always loved Poenobis, Unto Us a Boy is Born very simple tune, scalic, again, got lovely shape to the melody. And then Gaudete, which is uh, 
very rhythmic actually with the changing meters and uh, of course there was a what was it steel ice span did a uh, recording of it, a very folky type recording, and uh, it was very popular at the time. And uh, that sort of, again, influenced me because I knew it wasn't in the um, Salvation Army carol repertoire at that time, So, but it was popular outside. So that was really the rationale between choosing those three. So, And of course, the medieval carols have a really distinctive sound world with these sort of modal harmony they use. Uh, have you deliberately tried to treat these carols in a similar modal way, or have you juxtaposed the medieval sound with a modern sound that the brass band gives? I think the latter. I think I have tried to sort of juxtapose those two styles. I mean, the, the brass band um, sound, I, I do think, is ideally suited to these type of modal harmonies and certainly the type of melodies as they exist in this. Um, I've tried to consciously avoid rates, raised sevenths and things like that. Um, I've also tried to use um, a feature of Renaissance music, um, false relation between parts whereby you get um, a sort of major minor effect similar to the modern major minor jazz chords where you've got to say a G natural in one part against a G sharp in another register in another part so you get that sort of zing between the two notes. And other than the medieval influences are there any other influences we can hear in the piece as well? Um, I would say that halfway through where we we go into um, Puerinobis with the full band, not just the coordinates. So we're talking about measure 155. That is a conscious nod towards um, Peter Warlock's Capriol Suite, the sword dance from the Capriol Suite. Great. And thank you for that context into work. Uh, we'll now look at it in a little bit more detail at the music and follow the score. Those that are listening at home may find it useful to also follow a score, which of course are available on the Salvation Army Music Index. So, could you talk us through the opening, first of all, and what sort of atmosphere you're trying to create in the introduction up to roughly figure 12? Okay, well, the sort of, um, the percussions start sort of introducing the two styles, really. I mean, the sort of, the element of mystery at the beginning, and then the sort of more rhythmic style with the snare drum entry in the first, the end of the first bar and the second bar. Um, I'm trying to create an atmosphere of mystery and anticipation here. This is sort of, if you like, Advent in 12 bars. The, uh, the actual opening motif in the trombone is based on the opening of Coventry Carol. And if you look at the two beats before measure 12, I'm going to use the proper terminology, on the minim chord, so nice to be able to say that rather than half note and quarter note and the quavers in the cornet part you've got the g natural in the corn solo cornet part and the g sharp lower down in the band gives it that sort of i don't know that sort of tudor choral feel at that point but again it's sort of slightly hinting towards modern as well because of course major minor chords are very much a part of the um, jazz vernacular So moving on to figure 12, the music suddenly picks up tempo and we hear uh, some more strands of the Coventry Carol. What was your thought process behind using the slightly unusual 5-4 time signature here? <laughs> to be different, basically. Um, it just seemed to work very well in that time signature. And of course, I think, you know, most composers at one time or another have been influenced by that iconic Dave Brubeck figure from Take Five. And uh, I don't know, perhaps that had something to do with it. I, I really don't know. I just wanted it to be different, but with that medieval feel still to it. Absolutely. Um, and is there anything else that we should be looking out for, listening out for during this section up to figure 56? 
I guess the, uh, the percussion ostinato that keeps going through a lot of this. The quaver figures are sort of based on, uh, again, the, the main melodic idea. So I suppose the time change at 31, where the style sort of changes more to a, a sort of, I, I suppose you'd say a sort of March style, but it's, it's not really a March style, but it's, it's rhythmic and there's a sort of certain vigor and energy to it. we have this ad-lib flugel solo which sounds quite jazzy again is this an intentional juxtaposition between the jazz idiom and the medieval yes it was it was um i mean i i was i'll be completely honest i was writing this with the isb in mind and at that time the flugel player was robert foster and uh bob was a a good jazz player i mean himes is solo so glad Bob Foster really made that his own. He could play it in a very idiomatic style. And uh, I just thought, well, that's a bit of a sort of cheeky look to the future at that point um, with him in mind. So when we get to 56, the music enters another distinct section led by the snare drum playing this repeated ostinato figure. Mm. Could you talk us through the inspiration for this section? <laughs> well, you may have heard of a musical show called Riverdance. And uh, yes, the percussion part is definitely a nod to Riverdance at that point. said that you had the ISB in mind when writing this piece. Uh, did you have any particular members of the ISB that you could imagine river dancing along to this part? Uh, no, there was no one elegant enough in the ISB at that time <laughs> or energetic enough to certainly do that type of Irish dancing. <laughs> Except perhaps a very young Andrew Blythe. <clears throat> that sounds like something I think a lot of people would pay to see a dance. Oh, I'm sure they would, yes. And of course, in those days, you see... <laughs> David Dawes was a young one as well. I would have paid money to see David Riverdance, I think, while playing his cornet. Yes. <laughs> That's our future episode sorted. <laughs> <laughs> so let's head back to the music now. At figure 80, uh, tempo marking is Confuoco with fire. And perhaps this being our Christmas episode, we could get some chestnuts roasting on that fire there. So, talking about roasts, the soprano, solo cornet, baritone and euphonium parts are quite challenging here with these semi-quaver passages. Could you talk us through what happens musically in this section? So I was going to say basically nothing, it's just a repeat. And then I noticed that I interject uh, fragments of Gaudete. Um, I've got three bars of semiquavers and then two bars of Gaudete in the trombones. Then another three bars of dance material. Then another reference to Gaudete. And then the dance material carries on. And as is my want, it tends to get quicker and uh, leads us into the actual tune at 96, again with a very prominent percussion figure going on underneath. Now let's look at figure 96, where we have the two Gaudstein appearing in mm -hmm. full. And perhaps you could tell us a little bit about the melody and the way you've treated it in this section. Well, the melody itself is um, from a collection of medieval and Renaissance Finnish and Swedish tunes called P.A. Cantiones. It was published in the early 1580s and uh, became popular 
especially in in Germany and in the uh, what we think of as the Netherlands. And those tunes became very well known. The actual word Gaudete means rejoice. And the words of the refrain are rejoice, rejoice, Christ is born of the Virgin Mary, rejoice. Now that's quite interesting because it was a Renaissance tune. And of course, Re Renaissance um, saw the Reformation during that period. And this still has remnants of the Catholic um, veneration of the Virgin Mary in it, this particular carol. Um, it wasn't, wasn't removed at all um, because they tended to get rid of any Catholic references in these medieval song collections. So it's a very joyous, very joyous carol indeed. And uh, I can hear it being played. In fact, I've got, an, I've got a couple of um, medieval arrangements on CD with those uh, Renaissance drums and shawms and rackets and all those wonderful wind instruments from that period. I'm saying a really truly unique sound and uh, something I wish we could hear more of perhaps today. Oh yeah, yes. Now jumping forwards a little bit to bar 158, we change into the key of concert E major and we see the inclusion of the third carol, uh, Unto Us A Boy Is Born. Now we mentioned yep. this a little bit earlier, but could you talk us through what your ideas were with this section? Well, first of all, I thought long and hard about that key shift. And then I thought, bass trombone players aren't used to seeing four sharps. Um, and I thought, well, no, I'm not going to change the key just because it's an inconvenience. So I, I stuck to that key. Um, but it sits very nicely in that key, I think. And just a simple sort of intervallic treatment of the melody at 148, where I've just got open sixths, fifths, and thirds. Um, gives it that sort of, if you like, that sort of classical horn, the spacing of the chords in the horn writing in, in classical and early romantic style. Um, but I wanted the, the what's the, the uh, ostinato figure to continue. I like ostinatos. Um, I've used them a lot and uh, I, I thought an ostinato was a memorable figure through here. So basically it was just the timp solo, the timp solo at that point, which was the ostinato, but then the ostinato turned into sort of grinding fifths at the bass, boom, 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 boom which is, um, as I said earlier, I think a nod to Peter Warlock with the Caprio suite. when you're writing music does making it playable and idiomatic for the instruments you're writing for play on your mind much there are certain keys that sound better in the brass band i think that's something that plays on your mind the intonation um also a thing i've learned as i've written through the years is there's no virtue in just making it awkward for the sake of it being awkward I think there's a tendency when you start out to write, you want to try and make it as different and I don't know, as, as sort of, you want to try and inject some sort of level of difficulty into the music you're writing. When I was first moved out to the US, I went to hear a recital of modern uh, orchestral music, uh, which were the results of doctoral examinations in music at Princeton and there were six pieces performed and every one of them had every piece of percussion imaginable in them every possible tone color imaginable by the end of the third piece you were just overwhelmed with just so many sonic effects rather than actual good musical material and uh, if anything I would say to younger composers don't try to be as different as you can straight away. Don't use sonic effects just purely for effects. Use them when the music demands it. And um, 
I think I was also, because I had a certain band in mind, I'm also guilty of trying to make it a little bit difficult as well. Very wise advice, indeed. About 179, we have some antiphonal call and response figures between the cornets and the trombones uh, before the music, the character of the music changes once again at 187, marked Giacoso, lively and mm -hmm. joyful. Could you tell us what happens through the music here? Well, basically, I've broken the, um, the melody of Gaudete up into different registers, different tone colours, uh, cornets first, then trombones, then tubers. Um, and then at 187, I switch um, gear again and uh, sort of introduce changing meters briefly before landing on a nice comfortable 2-4 meter at 192. Twenty-seven. The music becomes much more chromatic from what we've seen before. And we see some really quite quick tonal progressions accompanied by an accelerando in the music that takes us through to 241. Is there mm -hmm. anything in particular that we should be looking for and listening out for in this section? Well, I love the effect of a 4-2 chord resolving onto a 6 chord. Um, I've heard it used wonderfully in... I can't remember which piece it is by RSA, but I, I thought it was such an, a, a striking effect that I actually used that as a modulatory passage through here. Um, 227 to 233 is basically successive 4-2 chords going to 6 chords, um, moving down chromatically. And then, of course, we arrive at 233, where we're in concert, what are we in concert C major at that point, and we arrive on that second inversion chord at the beginning of 233, which is always a bright sounding chord, I think. There's any other word to describe it other than scintillating this finish from 241 to the end. It's a real tour de force for any band to play. Uh, would you be able to talk us through this exciting final section? <laughs> yes, again, I'm getting quicker and quicker. <laughs> As my wife tells me, I do that in every piece I write. Um, so um, I just think this whole section as uh, a sort of coda section. Um, it's a decorated version of a melody that I use. Um, I've got that syncopated idea through there. Again, there's sort of um, brief mention of an ostinato at 248 in the basses and bass trombone. Um, it's sort of music of a closing nature. That's all really it is. I remember going to work one day, coming into Waterloo and thinking, I know that. And then realized they were actually playing Gaudete at Waterloo Station. Wow. And I thought, whoopee, royalties. And I think I probably saw about 25 pence for that. But, uh, even so, to have it played at Waterloo Station was a privilege and one I count myself lucky to have heard, because I wouldn't have believed anybody if they'd have told me. Did you ask all the commuters if they could keep it down a little bit, just so you could hear it a little bit better? No, I actually hurried onto the um, escalator and got out as quick as I could. <laughs> <laughs> Would you say the piece was written with the acoustics of Waterloo Station in mind? or? <laughs> Yes, you could get away with a lot in the acoustics of Waterloo Station, so that might be ideal for certain bands, but uh, um, no, definitely not. And my final question would be, um, obviously you've heard lots of different performances and recordings of this piece, but could you pick a favourite? Can I say, I have obviously not heard many recordings or performances of the piece. I've perhaps heard, I've played a couple myself, when I was in Entrada Brass, we played it. Um, 
I've heard it live twice, I think, and that was it. And I've only got one recording of it, and that's the recording the ISB made. Thank you ever so much for your time, Kevin. A really, really interesting and insightful look into your piece, Gaudetave. We'll be hearing from you later in another episode when we talk about the man behind the music. So now this brings us onto our final segment of the podcast. And I'd like to welcome Bill back to put his knowledge and trivia to the test in Band Mastermind. But as this is our Christmas special, our Band Mastermind is like no other Band Mastermind we've had before. It's a Christmas band mastermind. So, Bill, you have exactly one minute and 30 seconds to answer as many of these questions correctly as you can. You can always say pass if you don't know the answer. Uh, as long as it's not more than 16 times, as I've only got 16 questions, but hopefully that'll be enough. Um, William Flynn, are you ready to play Christmas Band Mastermind? I am ready to give it a go. Then your time starts now. Who wrote the melody for Joy to the World? Pass. Adaste Fidelis is the Latin name for which popular carol? I'm going to pass on it, but I know I'm, I should know that. Carol of the Bells originates from which European country? I'm going to say Germany. Very close, but incorrect, I'm afraid. No. <laughs> Deck, the Hall. Deck the Halls is an old Welsh air, uh, which originates from which century? The 18th century. Close, but incorrect, I'm afraid. And the glory of the Lord. Glory to God in the highest, and all we like sheep are choruses from which oratorio? I can't remember. No problem. Name two of the six carols featured in Kevin Larson's A Christmas Overture. Joy to the World. That is one, correct. And, um, oh, come all ye faithful. Excellent stuff. Who wrote the melody for Hark the Herald Angel Sings? I haven't met that salvationist. <laughs> Who wrote It Was On The Starry Night? Can't remember. No worries. Eric Ball's The Kingdom Triumphant contains which Advent carol? Our time's up, but I'll let you have a think. Yeah. Oh, time's up. Okay, okay. We'll stop there. So that gives you a grand total of, of two one. points. Oh, two points. Two points. We'll give you two for the two carols, uh, which means you're not at the bottom of the leaderboard, thankfully. Well, I'm close to Phil Cobb, right? <laughs> Quite close, yeah. <laughs> I think you're tied with Don Jenkins, if my memory uh, serves me correctly. So I'll just go through the answers for the ones that you didn't quite get. Yes. Uh, the, the melody for Joy to the World was written by Handel. Oh. Uh, a Fidelis is the Latin name for O Come, O You Faithful. Carol of the Bells actually comes from the Ukraine. Uh, Deck the Halls is an old Welsh air, which originates from the 16th century. And I believe it originally had quite, quite rude words, actually. So we won't bring them up here. <laughs> um, and the glory of the Lord, uh, glory to God in the highest, and all we like sheep are from the Messiah, by Handel again. Um, the other carols featured in Kevin Larson's Christmas Overture were O Come, Are You Faithful?, I can't remember which one you said now. So it was Joy to the World, O Coming You Faithful, The First Noel, Away in a Manger, Silent Night, and Hark the Herald. And then nicely, we moved on to who wrote the melody for Hark the Herald. It's Mendelssohn. And originally that carol was written to uh, celebrate the Gutenberg printing press. Comes from the Gutenberg Cantata. Um, and it was Joy Webb that wrote It Was on a Starry Night. Oh, yeah. And finally, the... The carol, the Advent carol in the Kingdom Triumphant is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Emmanuel, yeah. 
There we go. So once again, thank you ever so much for your time coming and joining us on the podcast. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. So unfortunately, that brings us to the close of our Christmas special, Fully Scored. I'd like to thank our guests once again, Bill Flynn and Kevin Norbury. It's been wonderful to speak to both of these gentlemen, and I hope that you've enjoyed it at home as well. I'd also like to thank our producer, Simon Gash, for his wonderful work editing all these podcasts together and just making it flow, making it work seamlessly. A wizard on the computer. And finally, I'd like to thank you, the listener at home, for listening. And I hope you have a very peaceful and blessed Christmas, however you end up spending it this year. Good night and God bless. Thank you.